What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Movie Crush, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey everybody, welcome to Mini Crush. Uh, this is a special edition, folks, because, well, I needed to get one in the can because <laughs> Noel and I had a travel schedule situation. And B, I wanted to do a special ep with Casey here uh, about his, well, I call it Casey on Can, yeah, but it was actually Casey in Paris. Yeah, that's the thing, and I, I, I'm half of mine to just start telling people I was at Can right. and like <laughs> simplify, streamline it a little bit because people go... Oh my God! Were you were in you were in Cannes? Like right. what? You know what directors did you bump elbows with? Right, or whatever. Right. Like, it's nah. like well, it's Cannes in Paris. It's you know. Yeah. So what's the deal? Let's break it down. Yeah. Just So everyone knows, Casey every year goes to uh, France. True. You go to Paris. This is what your fifth year? Oh no, sixth, ninth. Oh ninth. <laughs> yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. That's great. Well, it might be the eighth. It's the ninth trip because I went twice one year. Okay. Um, and I skipped a year, so I, I think it's about the eighth or ninth year I've been going. Right. It's yeah. a city you love. It, indeed, yes. Uh, uh, people that you love, a culture that you love. Yeah. And you're a cinephile, so it all kind of... It all dovetails nicely. Yeah, it all dovetails into uh, these trips that you take uh, usually around the Cannes Film Festival. Yeah. The last, I think, three years, um, since I kind of learned that this you know, was something that anybody could do, um, when the Cannes Film Festival is running, which is like mid-May, mm-hmm. um, the last three days of the festival, typically, they will replay... Um, a selection of mm-hmm. the competition films in Paris. Okay, and so uh, those last three days, you just go online when wow. the when the lineup is announced, uh-huh. buy the tickets, and you're golden. And is this something that you have to buy like before your trip? 
Yes. Well, I do just because, you know, I don't want stuff to sell out on me. Sure. But in, in, ex- in my experience, I don't know if I've ever been to a completely sold out screening. It's a really large theater that mm-hmm. they do the screenings in. It's the Gaumont um, Opera right by the Paris Opera House. What's that like? Describe the theater. It's huge. Mm-hmm. It is a huge, huge theater. Um, very, very um, technically superior kind of facilities. Yeah. Huge screen. Great sound. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of one of those where there's like not a bad seat in the house, mm-hmm. uh, even if you're slightly off axis or a little bit further back. Um, I, I've like never had a bad seat in that theater and I've been, you know, everything from like the front row, like far left side. Uh-huh. I think I saw the neon demon that way. And that was a, a particularly kind of sold out screening. So I just kind of squeezed in at the front. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's incredible. And they, they even go out of their way to make it a little more Ken-like, mm-hmm. the, the atmosphere in the theater. They have like a red carpet outside where you line up. Oh, cool. Before the movie opens, they have, you know, various kind of Ken-themed posters. Uh-huh. And you get uh, a real program that has all the competition films. Right. Like the same handbill that would be given out yeah. in, in Ken. That's awesome. Is the theater like ornate? Inside it's, or is it a like a? I mean, it's a American multiplex. Yeah, it's it's somewhere between American shopping mall and maybe slightly more ornate. But okay. there's definitely like more movie palace type places in Paris, like uh, the Grand Rex or the Luxor or something mm-hmm. that are a little more that that kind of old timey feel. Right. This is more like just a very up to date. Yeah. You know, extremely you know competent projection kind of. Yeah. So uh, is the city itself sort of celebrating Cannes, or is it just? Uh, this one pocket where this movie theater is? It feels a little bit more like a pocket. Although okay. if you're looking at, you know, all the all the sort of advertisements in the metro, mm-hmm. all the kind of ones that you'll walk past on the street, they'll often be for films that are playing in Cannes or yeah. oftentimes stuff will play in Cannes and then go into general theatrical release in France like mm-hmm. a few days later. Yeah, It kind of depends. Some stuff doesn't play until like later in the fall. Um, but a lot of stuff... It's almost like they, they kind of use Cannes as like a launching point. Mm-hmm. So they get all the press and the coverage right. and, you know, people chomping at the bit to see what all the fuss is about. And mm-hmm. then they put it out in theaters like a week later, which is completely different than yeah. what we experience here in the States, where it's kind of like you hear about it in Cannes mm-hmm. and then you might not see it in general theatrical release until later in the year or yeah. even next year. Sometimes right. you might only be able to catch it on like a video for streaming kind of release. Um so it's definitely that's part of the appeal is to be able to see this stuff when it's hot off the presses mm-hmm. and all the kind of like online film conversation is centering around these movies, right. all the debates and controversies and stuff. And you get to see it within like a few days of that happening. That's pretty great. Which is great. Yeah, it's it's really fun. Um, and then it's interesting, too, because there's almost like a second wave when the stuff does eventually come out in the States. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, yeah, I remember seeing that like a year ago right. or six months ago. <laughs> yeah. And you kind of get to see how the the lapse in time how something is received differently here yeah. versus in can because can because you pack in so many screenings every day mm-hmm. it gets to be a little fatiguing and yeah. it gets to be sort of there are certain movies that don't land properly because of it's like a three hour epic yeah. slotted in between like three or four other things you had going on that day so you know films that require a little more patience mm-hmm. or a little more subtle or something sometimes those will get booed at can or or just get kind of middling reviews right. Um, but then, you know, they, they open in the States or they play other festivals around the world where it's not so jam packed mm-hmm. and people are like, oh, this is a really a beautiful, quiet film or something, you know? Yeah. So there's always that kind of can distortion field that you right. have to account for. And it's kind of interesting to see 
the way something is written about and talked about in its immediate release versus mm-hmm. where the conversation ultimately kind of falls like later on. Yeah. Um, I remember like last year seeing a Lars von Trier film, The House That Jack Built. Uh-huh. And right away, it was kind of like hyped up as like, it's so ultra violent. It's so controversial. You can't believe he made this film and, you know, they're going to have to edit it for the U.S. release and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And I, I found it to be rather tame, actually. Oh, really? Um, not that there's not a few rough scenes in there, but I mean, it's, it, it, you know, it's, it's an R-rated film. It's, it's not that crazy. Um, but just kind of seeing like the hype of like massive walkouts during the Cannes premiere. And, yeah. uh, there's even like a, a warning printed on people's tickets. Like this film contains extreme violence. And oh, wow. if you're upset by this, you know, maybe consider <laughs> not going and which, which all plays into Lars von Trier's like oh, provocateur sure. thing. Like he wants that, you oh, know, yeah. he wants people to walk out. He wants people to, you know, throw up and uh-huh. whatever, you know, just like, um, that if, if they're not doing that, then he feels like he hasn't done his job. But, um, to me, it was just kind of, it was just interesting. And, and also the conversation in France culturally is a little different than the conversation in America culturally. Yeah. That's what I was going to ask next. Like, what is the film going audience like? Um, not just like, especially for these films. Yeah. Cause I imagine this is the people like you. Yeah, it's like, it's a cinephile audience. It's yeah. like it's like a subsection of right. you know, people who, you know, more broadly speaking are like the movie audience in France. Yeah. Like what's it like in there? What's different? It's very I mean, with all the can screenings, it, there's there's a, an energy and excitement yeah. and anticipation. Um people you can tell everybody around you has probably been reading the same blogs and right. and, and like following the same accounts on Twitter and reading the same reactions out of can and so on. Um, they're familiar with the previous works of the filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Like they're they're just steeped in that yeah. in that feeling. There's a lot of um, people that are you know like university age. They're students. They're film students yeah. that are again like their whole they eat, breathe, and sleep cinema right. kind of thing. So, so there's yeah, and um, and then there's there's also like older like you know professorial types right or just people that are you know somewhere beyond student age that are you know, cinephiles and they're yeah. not necessarily like involved in it professionally, but they are just these diehard Parisian cinephiles that yeah. you see at every screening kind of thing. Have you uh, heard booing or clapping or hissing? Yeah, there's there's um, not so much booing. Um, the booing definitely happens in Cannes. Mm-hmm. And I think it happens there more because oftentimes the cast and crew are present. Right. So they, so really they want, they, it's like, they yeah, it's like a direct kind of response <laughs> thing where it's like, there's no filter. You, you know, even if you're one of those filmmakers, it's like, I don't read reviews, you know, right. like the critics can say booed. what they say. Um, hurt your feelings. There's, there's no filter in, in can and they will definitely, yeah. they'll boo your movie. They'll walk out of your movie yeah. or they'll give it a 10 minute standing ovation. Right. Like, you know, you're going to know, one way or the other, where yeah. where people land on things. It's a pretty big litmus test. And there's always like one or two movies a year. I feel like the the curators of Cannes um, do this somewhat deliberately. Like they uh-huh. always program something in the main competition that you know is is going to cause polarizing. Sure, polarizing. It's going to cause some kind of big reaction. Last year it was the Lars von Trier movie. They want articles to be written about what's yeah. going on. Yeah, I mean they they they, they are in a changing media landscape. Sure. They're they're in a world. I mean, the last few years of Cannes have been kind of, uh, I don't know, haunted by the specter of Netflix. Like mm. the the debate, like should a Netflix film play in Cannes? Right. Should it not? Um, there were several high profile instances where, for instance, 
um, Alfonso Cuaron's Roma was going to be in Cannes. Right. And then Netflix pulled it because mm-hmm. Cannes was kind of being, you know. Canny. Canny about, <laughs> about the, their inclusion. Yeah. The year before, I think there had been several films from Netflix that were included, like uh, Noah Baumbach's um, uh, Meyerowitz stories. Mm-hmm. Um, several other kind of high-profile ones. Where do you land on that? Curious. It's really tricky because... These are movies. Yeah, they are. They are movies, and some of them are great movies, yeah. like like Aroma, that is absolutely made to be seen in a theater, even though it may only get a symbolic theatrical release. Right. Unfortunately, it's a tough call as a cinephile. It's a tough call. Um, yeah, it you is. You want to encourage people to still go out and see these things. Yeah, in and and also because of the the realities of the rest of the industry, where it's moved, it's shifted in this direction of like, you know. Marvel and and franchise right. pictures and mm-hmm. so on are like some of the only things getting made by major studios. Right, Netflix, yeah. the whole like mid level auteur, like grown ups in a room talking style cinema, yeah. really has become the domain of like Netflix and yeah. Amazon people like that that are still willing to you know put ten twenty million on a budget right for a respected filmmaker to make something kind of mm-hmm. quiet and adult yeah and um, so a lot of these movies that are like the kind of movies I care about Mm -hmm. are getting financed way more by these streaming services than are getting these kind of like theatrical, uh, you know, uh, origins. Yeah. So for all those reasons, I mean, I'm kind of like loosely in favor of it, but at the same time, I don't like what Netflix is doing in terms of how they release these films where they really will go almost straight to on demand Mm -hmm. or, or like a week later go to on demand and sometimes no theatrical at all. Right. If there's most, not, most if it's not like a, a question of awards right, season like a and so on. Piece. Um, but you know, I mean, something like um, the upcoming Scorsese film, The Irishman. Right. Which I think the budget for that is somewhere between two and three hundred million, and they're what? and they're paying to have all these de aging effects done for Robert yeah. De Niro, um, which has been like a, a a passion project of Scorsese's for a while, mm-hmm. and it never would have been made at. Uh, a major studio because right. nobody's going to put that kind of money in. You know, Netflix can have a little bit different of a calculation where it's like, yeah. we may not make our money back on this exact picture one to one, but we will drive people to subscribe to our service, make a name for ourselves mm-hmm. on the international scene, and so on. So, I don't know. I think I think film distribution in Hollywood and the industry is a ever changing, evolving landscape. Yeah. And at the moment, there's a lot of good reasons, valid reasons for people, you know, high caliber filmmakers to be making stuff with Netflix yeah. or Amazon. And so I don't know. I think I think you have to look at them as films, basically. Yeah, for and, sure. But but Bacan has arrived at this position now where basically they're not including the Netflix stuff yeah. in the selection. And it's a whole separate argument about um uh, theatrical distribution in France. Uh-huh. So it's like if a film has theatrical distribution in France lined up and it's not going to immediately go to streaming, right. then they will consider it as like a theatrical release. Okay. If it's something that's going to go straight to streaming and Netflix doesn't want to guarantee any kind of theatrical release there, then they may not, you know, see it that way. Oh, gotcha. And, and there's also, there's a similar tension just between like TV in general right. and because, you know, you, for instance, like Twin Peaks The Return mm-hmm. had sort of a screening of a few episodes in Cannes. This year they showed uh, the new um, Nicholas Winding Refn series, Too Old to Die Young. They showed like a couple episodes that were almost combined in like a mini feature. 
in like a special screening. Oh, interesting. So they still they still have like their favorite kind of auteurs and yeah. people that they will kind of bend the rules for. Bend the rules for, exactly. Yeah. For David Lynch or something. This summer, click into Memorial Day savings at the Home Depot and get after those outdoor projects with some serious cordless power from Ryobi. Tackle more than half an acre of grass with the convenience and gas-like power of the Ryobi 40-volt battery-powered mower. Leaves and debris are no match for the 40-volt power of the Ryobi leaf blower. No cords, no gas, no hassle. Tidy up those flower beds and keep your walkways looking sharp with Ryobi's 40-volt cordless string trimmer. Yard work, done and done. Click into Memorial Day savings happening now at your cordless power source, The Home Depot. Shop now at The Home Depot or homedepot.com. How doers get more done. This is Ashley Iconetti from the Ben and Ashley I Almost Famous podcast. Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure, to start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee. Sounds perfect. Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So what is, uh, films aside, mm-hmm. how long are you over there? Three, Three weeks. weeks. Yeah. And what's going on day to day? So. Paint a picture for us, Casey. Yeah. What's the, Paris like the da- for you? <laughs> the day to day existence for me. Where are you staying? Uh, this time I stayed in the ninth, Aaron D. Small, um, close to the 18th. Okay. Um, I stayed there deliberately because it was kind of walking distance, about a 15 minute walk from the second Aaron D. Small, which is opera, which mm-hmm. is where the screenings happen. It just makes it easier because I don't have to like yeah. plan like a 30, 40 minute metro trip. Right. I can just literally walk out of the apartment and mm-hmm. I know any time of day, any conditions, you know, strike or no strike or whatever, mm-hmm. like I can just be there in like 15 minutes time. Um, so for the three days that the actual festival screenings are happening, it's jam packed. It's like get up, make it to your first screening, mm-hmm. maybe at like 10 a.m., and then they're they're staggered, but only by like five or ten minutes. Oh, these wow. screenings, uh-huh. and they all happen in the same room. So one screening ends, you have to walk out 
get back in line <laughs> and you're running right ticket. back in. Uh-huh. And you're lucky if you have enough time for like a bathroom break right. or, you know, grabbing something from like uh, one of the convenience machines. So how many movies are you seeing in a day? Probably like four, three to four. Okay. Maybe so five. That happens over the course of? Three days. Three days. And so then the rest of the time you're if just... You were, if you were going to pack in all the screenings that are offered, it would be somewhere between like, say, 12 and 15 screenings mm-hmm. in those three days. Yeah. The, the films only play once. Yeah. And so it's like you're either there or you're not there. Right. And it's very interesting because a lot of these films, like obviously the high profile stuff will have a lot of coverage. Mm-hmm. Some of the smaller, lesser known, like maybe first time filmmakers or just things that are not as much on the radar mm-hmm. might only have one or two reviews by the time you're deciding whether or not you want to go see it. Right. So you really have to kind of go on maybe just like a line or two, like a log right. line on IMDb or something to or really reputation. know what this is. Yeah. Um, so that can be quite interesting, like uh, taking taking a chance on mm-hmm. just a random thing and walking in and sometimes it pays off and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. But for those three days, it is like the only thing you're doing basically is mm-hmm. sitting in this dark room watching these movies. Right. And kind of, like I said, scrambling to your next screening or once in a while I'll, I'll hit upon something that I don't want to see um, and so I'll be like, okay, that's a meal break. You know, I can actually right. go off site and like sit down for a nice meal for like an hour and a half, two hours, make it back to the theater and, right. and pick it up. So uh, before we get into these films, um, I still don't have a, enough of a painted picture. Casey, yeah. So, uh, so besides those three days, like what, what are you doing? You walking around? I'm you sleeping living in. as a Parisian? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, sleeping sl- in? I'm sleeping in. I'm definitely okay. not setting an alarm clock most days yeah. unless there's some specific reason. Sure. Uh, I'm walking everywhere as mm-hmm. much as possible. Yep. Um, I do take the metro, but I prefer to walk when I can. Of course. Uh, just to see the city, feel yeah. like you're in That's the city and, you know, stumble you across things. random stuff, notice things. Yeah. Um, the, the metro is a little bit more like teleportation, mm-hmm. so you don't feel the same connection. So do you have an agenda most days? Like, no, uh, no. I want to go to this museum and do this thing, or is it mainly like... I'm just going to go see where the day takes me exactly. and wander exactly. around Paris. And- I, you know, the most planning I will do typically is I will go online and look at all the schedules for all the different cinemas that I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I do have like a group of maybe five or ten that I tend to like frequent the most yeah. that are more like repertory kind of programming. Mm-hmm. And so I will look at those schedules and then I'll make kind of like notes in my calendar mm-hmm. and – not with the intention that I'm going to make it to every one of the screenings. Right. Because Paris is one of those cities that you immediately realize, even if I wanted to, I could not literally physically be in all these places right. in the same 24-hour period. Yeah, it's large. So you have to you have to trade things off. You have to say, if I go to this one, I'm not going to make it across town to this other thing that starts like 15 minutes later. Right. So which of these two? Right. And then from there, maybe this one puts me on the side or on the right side of town for this third thing or whatever. Because you also want to enjoy Paris and not feel exactly. like you're always in a fucking exactly, hurry. exactly. Yeah. And so I do reserve the right any time to abandon <laughs> plans and just be like, you, you know what? Sit by the river. <laughs> Even though there's like something playing in 35 one time today, yeah. that I'm probably never going to see again. Yeah, yeah. I just need some time outside. You, you know, I've been in, I've been indoors that. too much. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's fine. You you realize there's always going to be something else. A day or two later, that's mm-hmm. going to be just as compelling, pretty much. So, yeah, I mean, my my routine is walking around, mm-hmm. taking a lot of pictures. Yeah. Sometimes doing some some you know some moving pictures as well. I imagine Paris in May is beautiful. Typically, not this year. Uh, it, it rained 
like a lot oh, this really? year. But Paris is beautiful in the rain too. It is beautiful in the rain too, <laughs> but at a certain point it's like, all right, cut it out. Right. Like, I want some sunlight. <laughs> I want some like hard shadows. I don't just yeah. want like overcast for every every picture I take. Yeah, that's true. Um but yeah, it, it's it's that. It's going to nice restaurants. Uh-huh. It's, you know, seeing my friends that live there. So you got some pals there? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Um I've got kind of a core of like three or four pals that you've met while traveling? That I've met. Well, this is this is kind of uh it's a, a, a sidetrack a little bit, but no Chandler, who also works here, mm-hmm. he hasn't done Movie Crush, has no. he? Okay. Um, but Chandler, also big cinephile, um, he put me in touch with somebody who was a Canadian expat mm-hmm. friend of his who had lived in Atlanta like during high school. So they went to high school together. Gotcha. And then uh, this guy, because he has Irish grandparents, was able to get an EU passport. Uh. I'm so what envious score, of huh? anybody who can do that, um, and I've met numerous. Yeah, you know, it's it's you always ask everybody like, how did you how did you end up here, or how do right. you how do you stay? <laughs> it's, it was really yeah. the 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 key question, and it's like, oh yeah, I have Irish grandparents or this or right. that thing. You know, I have dual citizenship. Yeah, it's like son of, you, a bitch. son of a bitch, because uh, it's not so easy for right. someone like myself who has just bog standard British English right. kind of. Anglo origins. There's there's no special program for that. You know? No one feels sorry for us. Casey. No, no. Um, so uh, he put me in touch with this friend of a friend kind of thing, and so I met him. Through him, I met more people. Uh-huh. That's cool. And 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 through those other people who were more kind of like expat types as well, uh-huh. I met some like Parisians that are, you know, willing to be friends with expats, which right. is not every Parisian. Sure, Parisians. Um, tend to be a little insular. Uh-huh. They tend to be a little private. Right. Um, they tend to kind of stick to their social circle. Yeah. And those social circles don't necessarily overlap very much with their professional mm-hmm. world. So you could work um, with somebody for yeah. years and years and not even know if they're married or have kids or right. never be invited over to their house for any uh-huh. kind of thing. So it's like, you know, and it, it's considered kind of rude to like when you meet a person for the first time to be like, what do you do? You know, right. That's like the least interesting thing to talk about. Yeah. Interesting. Um, it's more like, what do you do when you're not at work? Like, right. what is your passion? What do you really, oh, you know, they do it right. don't so, they? So, yeah, I mean, it's 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 definitely a, a work to live rather than live to work. Yeah. Kind of thing. And um, so you, you drinking some wine. Not so much. No, no, no. I'm not like a real uh, I'm not like a real wine connoisseur. Right. Um, I'm not even particularly like a food person. Yeah. So a lot of my meals are more functional. You McDonald's. Know? Yeah. <laughs> a lot of a lot of McDonald's surprisingly because specifically in the geography of where that theater, the uh-huh. opera theater is, there's a McDonald's literally like next door to it. Yeah, yeah. So if you have to get the quick meal. Yeah. You know I mean, you I it. know I can be in and out of there in like 10, 15 minutes. With a little Big Mac? Yeah. Well, with uh, chicken nuggets is like kind of my go-to thing, like a true child. Because um, it's just, it's fast, man, and it's predictable. Yeah. And I mean, the dining in, in Paris is, is the complete opposite. They they assume yeah. you're there to hang out, sure. It's and like when you're when you're finished with a meal, they don't bring you meals. the check or anything. Yeah. Like that's your real estate. If you want to sit there for hours and hours and read a book or drink oh, a coffee or it, yeah. do whatever, like it's it's yours. You yeah. know, you you have claim over that thing, and they're not trying to rotate in, you know, x number of more groups or seatings or whatever. So. Um, there's this weird standoff that happens where you've like finished the meal, mm-hmm. and you're kind of like trying to like catch the eye of the person and right. be like. That is the only thing, and uh, and yeah, it, that can that can easily add yeah 
15, 20 minutes to a meal uh-huh. sometimes. <laughs> and that could be the critical difference between getting where you want to be or not. Yeah. So, you know, I, I have gotten to the point where it's just like, I know I can run over here, do, you know, yeah. get some calories in my body and then right. just like run back in for another screening. How's your French these days? Perfect? I would say it's perfect. Um, I think for it to be like completely 100% fluent, I would just need to live there for sure. a period of time. But you're like, but it's, it's you're, good. you're strong. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I do as much as I can here to keep it fresh when I'm not there. Mm-hmm. It kind of ebbs and flows. I'll go through periods where like I'm reading a novel or something in French and I'm really kind of tied into it. Mm-hmm. Or there will be like a podcast in French that I'm kind of checking every week. Right. Um, or seeing French films. Yeah, seeing French films and um, even going to like meetup groups where people talk French and that kind of thing. Uh, where are those happening? Uh, a Pradium, you know, a Pradium. <laughs> oh, sure. Near the, the Midtown Art. There's uh-huh. there's a monthly one there. Oh, nice. Um, there's there's a few things. There's like the Alliance Francaise in Atlanta. You can take classes and go to meetups and stuff. And Do you have a beret? No. Okay. No, I mean, that's, you know... <laughs> That's I'm one thing kidding. you learn about Paris is that it's not all striped shirts and berets no, and French not. poodles and, and all that. So let's go through a couple of – like let's maybe pick out your three favorite films that you saw. Um, it looks like you saw about what, 13 to 15? From the – yeah, from the main from the main competition and also from the, the sidebar competitions because there's also in addition to the main competition, there's these sidebars during the festival like Uncertain Regard, uh, Director's Fortnight, mm-hmm. Critics Week. Um, a seed and a few others that are not considered part of the official festival per se, but they are mm-hmm. tertiary to the festival. And especially like Uncertain Regard and Director's Fortnite, there's a lot of really good stuff that ends up in those mm-hmm. that for one reason or another, maybe because the filmmaker is not as politically like favored by the the Cannes Selection Committee and yeah. so on. There's a lot of like behind the scenes stuff, favoritism that goes on. Um where sometimes the really compelling stuff will end up in these sidebars. And so the sidebar films will play in the weeks following the main competition reprise. So, uh, and those are more exhaustive in their scope, which is great too, because one of the main frustrations of the main competition stuff is you never know what's going to get picked and what's not. Right. Or for some other reason, like maybe the distributor doesn't even want to replay it in Paris. So for instance, there were two kind of heartbreakers this year. Uh, the Terrence Malick film, A Hidden Life. Yes. And the Tarantino film, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Both of those are missing from Paris. Mm. And, you know, it's just one of those things where sometimes you get the big ones and sometimes you don't. Yeah. Probably it's a case in both where the distributor doesn't necessarily have an incentive to replay it in Paris and have like another 500 or 1,000 people see it. Yeah. When they could just build the hype longer. Right. And keep the word of mouth, the buzz going, yeah. and open it like you know over the summer in the fall or something. Yeah, I'm sure you wanted to see those, and apparently oh, yeah. that um, I'm sure you know, but the the Terrence Malick film is getting pretty good marks. It did, as yeah, a bit of a return to form. Absolutely, yes, a movie with an actual sort of coherent. Uh, he had a, he had, a, he had more of a screenplay this time. <laughs> yeah, that's good. And uh, and you know, as as one critic described it, there are actual scenes of people in a room talking to each other <laughs> for a sustained amount of time where we don't suddenly jump. Yeah, forward or backward the, chronologically sure. or what somebody's thinking about or a memory they're having or whatever, yeah. This summer, click into Memorial Day savings at the Home Depot and get after those outdoor projects with some serious cordless power from Ryobi. Tackle more than half an acre of grass with the convenience and gas-like power of the Ryobi 40-volt battery-powered mower. 
Leaves and debris are no match for the 40 volt power of the Ryobi leaf blower. No cords, no gas, no hassle. Tidy up those flower beds and keep your walkways looking sharp with Ryobi's 40 volt cordless string trimmer. Yard work, done and done. Click into Memorial Day savings happening now at your cordless power source, The Home Depot. Shop now at The Home Depot or homedepot.com. How doers get more done. This is Ashley Iconetti from the Ben and Ashley I Almost Famous podcast. Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure, to start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee, sounds perfect. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, here's what we'll do. I'll pick out one, and then you pick out one. Sure. Um, because I want to hear a little bit. And, you know, don't give too much away, but just maybe your overall uh, thought. Yeah, I'll try not to, on to these spoil films. anything. Yeah. But um, I would love to hear a little bit about The Lighthouse. Yes. Uh, yeah. Robert Eggers' follow-up to The Witch. Which is incredible to to think that to for me to think having seen it already there's not even a trailer yet yeah i think there's just that one production still of willem dafoe and and robert pattinson standing in front of the lighthouse in black and white this movie is important to me because i wrote a script a thriller uh period that's right i remember you telling me this yeah and this movie uh i read about it after i had written this script and um was going to make it on a very small budget right, basis, right. and the money fell through. Yeah, and then I heard about this movie, and I was like, "Son of a bitch!" I think, <laughs> if I remember right, yours had more of like a intruders coming from the outside kind yeah. of vibe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, how'd you like this? Was it good? Boy, um, this is a tough one to talk about because I was a little mixed on it. Okay, even though, even though I think it's extremely strong filmmaking mm-hmm. from from Eggers and and everybody involved. The performances are super compelling to watch. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's just great, especially Willem Dafoe, hearing him do this kind of like Herman Melville, like yeah. pirate there's sort of humor to it, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. there's a lot of humor. There's there's a lot of like like body kind of like mm-hmm. uh, there's there's you know multiple fart jokes throughout the movie, <laughs> nice. which which you kind of don't expect necessarily <laughs> right. in something you yeah, know yeah. whatever. Um, yeah, I mean it's it's a very like 
intense psychological kind of thriller. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's very much about. I mean, I would compare it in some ways to The Shining. It's about somebody going Isolation. through kind of a a mental breakdown, mm-hmm. let's say, and uh, and having visions and seeing things that you're not sure are real or not real. Um, and also, yes, the isolation of being on this island where nobody else is, you know, it's kind of the cabin fever sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but it's remarkable the way they shot it with these old cameras that I believe date to like the silent film era mm-hmm. and wow. lenses that certainly are are quite old as well. Again, uh, kind of the uncoded lenses that don't quote unquote perform optically as well as right. a newer lens today, but oh, has more of a character to it. Um, it is in black and white, and it is in a, a very narrow, tall aspect ratio, uh, 1.19 to 1. So that's not even square, is it? No, it's like narrower than square, and you really don't see narrower that. Narrower than square. Was that a Devo album? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, you really don't see that aspect ratio used very much. Um, uh-huh. And, uh, yeah, it, it gives it, – I mean, obviously, it's a film about a lighthouse, which is kind of a tall – Narrow thing. Does that make sense? So, it, so it's obviously well-suited for that. But it also just immediately puts you in this whole other aesthetic universe. Right. Of, um, yeah, like uh, parts of it kind of reminded me of like Tarkovsky, for instance, or Bergman, some of Bergman's really intense kind of black and white films. Wow. Um, it absolutely has this like art house kind of uh, aesthetic to it. That's, mm-hmm. I mean, every shot you could kind of freeze frame and – you know, it's 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 and frame it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And um, so the reason I was mixed on the film was that there's so many things about it that are super compelling, and that it's just kind of firing on, on all cylinders. Mm-hmm. The ultimate underlying story of what happens is a little threadbare. It's a little kind mm-hmm. of like there's all this kind of sound and fury around it. Mm-hmm. But if you kind of reduce it down, there's not as much thematically happening as, for instance, in The Witch, which uh-huh. I think was a more overall better kind of controlled and paced film mm-hmm. had more atmosphere to it. I mean, The Lighthouse has a ton of atmosphere as well. Um, just that that setting on the island and yeah. um, the sound of the seagulls and the waves crashing and the isolation mm-hmm. and um, the just like the starkness of the of the surroundings. Definitely there's there's tons of atmosphere, but I think The Witch had more of like a patience and a, and a slow burn quality to it right. that really ratcheted up the horror and the tension as the film progressed. Whereas this one kind of like the shining, like it's sort of the thing where Jack Nicholson's already half crazy when he's driving up in the car. Like it just kind of feels like it jumps into it. And then it just kind of like, it's like a sledgehammer. It just kind of like keeps getting more and more and more and more intense. But afterwards there was less for me to kind of digest, let's say than with the witch where you could really dig into all the themes about, you know, what it means for like, this young woman to be the witch and to be kind of, there's almost like a sort of like a feminist subtext about yeah, it, yeah. about, you know, the the history of the witch trials and women's mm-hmm. sexuality and all this kind of stuff. This was a little more kind of just a crazy yarn, you know? Gotcha. And, and it's, as I said, I mean, I will, I will gladly go see it again when it opens here. Mm-hmm. I think people will be, <clears throat> I think a lot of people will really love this film. I think it won't work for everybody necessarily. Sure. Um, but I do think it's it's going to be one of the more talked about movies this year for yeah. sure, and uh, and like I said, um, visually just like unmatched, you know, versus pretty much anything else I saw. Yeah. Um, why don't we let you pick your favorite film that you saw? Okay, let's see. 
I mean, I'm seeing names on here. There's like a few. Almodovar. Yeah. Yes. Well, the the Almodovar. Yeah. Oh God, the Ken Loach was was heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. Yeah, maybe that's one to talk about because sorry, sorry, we missed you. Sorry, we missed you. And that that's a reference to kind of the the whole gig economy, uh, Amazon Prime world of you know same day delivery. Um, these these kind of couriers who um, are, are contract workers mm-hmm. or they're or they're independent contractors. They're they're not full employees mm-hmm. who are working for this company. So they assume all the risk by either renting or purchasing this delivery van. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's kind of like it's on them to make their route, make their schedule. And it doesn't matter if somebody's not home mm-hmm. and, and, and you need a signature. It doesn't matter if the neighbor's home and he hates the guy that the delivery is being made for. Yeah. He says, screw that guy. I'm not going to sign for him. And it's like, please, sir, I have 10 more of these deliveries I need to make. If I have to double back here, it's not going to work out. My time. Only in the world of Ken Loach is that a movie. I know, I know, but what's, you know, that, that, so there's that going on, but of course it's also the story of not just the, the delivery driver, but his family too. Mm -hmm. It's a very, very fleshed out portrait of these, these four people, Mm -hmm. husband, wife, and two kids, uh, a son and a daughter. And, um, and you see how, um, the wife is working as like a, like a part-time nurse kind of like Mm -hmm. she, she does in-home care. So she will kind of like go by somebody's house, uh, an elderly person that's living by themselves, mm-hmm. maybe doesn't have anybody else to look out after them. And, um, and you know, just make sure they're getting on well, you know, um, clean anything that needs to be cleaned up. Yeah. But she has such a, a human touch with him. She has like a real genuine relationship with, this, with these people. They're like friends. Mm-hmm. And she really cares and invests in them emotionally. And yet the the employer that she works for is very, like, metric-driven and, you know, you have this many minutes to get in and out and there's no such thing as extenuating circumstances and so on. Mm-hmm. So it is, it is that, that, that conflict between, like, what, what Loach is saying about, like, maybe a slightly older world idea of people taking their time. Yeah. And 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 being patient and and kind of working with someone that way versus this sort of like on demand economy where yeah we're we're measuring things down into like milliseconds you know and it's all about increased efficiency and, yeah. and revenue and and um, you know quarterly growth and, and all the rest of it so um, always a champion of the uh, the working the working the, class yeah yeah I mean he's he's. He's made a career out of this since the 1960s doing yeah, these yeah. small little socialist films. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> socialist realism kind of kitchen yeah, sink dramas. It's really interesting. That, uh, but it, it, like what was so what was so great because I, I'm, I don't always get on that well with Ken Loach's films and even the one he made right before this one, uh-huh. uh, which I can't I'm, – I'm blanking on the name. It's I, I, Daniel Blake. Daniel Blake. I can't yeah. remember his name. I, Daniel Blake. Um, that one to me – felt a little more schematic and a little more like these are less three-dimensional characters and they're more sort of all the kind of parts we need to show that the NHS is being savaged by kind of austerity. Um, um, There's a sense where sometimes you feel like character is secondary to like the political point he wants to make. Right. And sometimes things are a little too convenient or a little too on the nose. Right. 
with sorry we missed you it did not feel that way at all i've just felt so so much uh empathy for this person for the for the whole family and again it's like we were saying about about birth where uh everybody has their reasons everybody has their own motivations yeah and they are at odds with each other but you understand everybody's position and you just want the best for everybody and you realize that the tension is just getting more and more uh ratcheted up and you know, things are, things are going wrong and mm. there's no margin of error and it just gets, it just goes from bad to worse. And it was one of those films that like for days after, like if, if I even tried to like summarize the plot for somebody, I would get kind of choked up about oh, it. Wow. And, you know, because they really do feel like real people. Uh-huh. And after the movie's over, it ends on kind of an open-ended note where it's, it's not all bad and it's not all good. You kind of just understand you've seen a window into this person's life and experience for maybe a month, you know, wow. and they're going to go on and there's going to be more ups and downs. But so y- you kind of, you're left with this, like, I wonder how he's doing now. I, I wonder yeah. how the family's getting on, you know, yeah, like you really exists. do, you really do live with them, uh, within you. So it's, um, beautiful film. I, I, I you know, yeah. I, I can't wait to see it again. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to pick the next one because I'm always curious what, uh, Pedro Almodovar is yes. doing next. Yeah. And he has a film called Pain and Glory. Yeah. Um, what's that all about? It's one of his best movies in, in a long time, I think. Oh, wow. Um, and it's kind of his uh, Wild Strawberries, if you've seen that one. Uh, Bergman film as well. I have not. Um, it, it's about somebody, uh, it's about a filmmaker. Um, this is Pain and Glory I'm talking about. About a filmmaker who has had many kind of critical successes throughout his career. Who is the filmmaker? Uh, it's played by Antonio Banderas. Oh, of course. You know, it's, it's a fictional filmmaker, but, yeah. you know, and, and it's it's sort of a, a loosely uh, based on Almodovar himself. Um, so his he has like the same kind of hair and beard as Almodovar. Oh, and, he? <laughs> um, and he, he lives in this apartment that you can you can just imagine this is probably how Almodovar has his apartment decorated in terms of like these really bold reds and uh-huh. yellows. And, you know, he's kind of... Um, uh, very modernist, artistic, yeah. beautiful, beautifully uh, furnished apartment um, that that kind of feels like. I mean, the character says at one point, like, "I don't, I don't have a lot of money in the bank. I don't have a lot of investments. Like, this yeah. apartment is everything to me. You know, yeah. I, this is like my life's work. Sort of is summed up in this space right. that he's built. And so he he's been asked to uh, show up at a screening of a restoration of one of his earlier films. Okay. That's, it's been maybe 20 or 30 years since it came out. Uh-huh. And on that film, he had this, this kind of contentious relationship with his main actor uh-huh. who we come to find out was like on a lot of drugs during the making of the film. Mm-hmm. And the character himself was also written to be on drugs during the film, but they were different drugs. So right. oh. <laughs> as written in the film, he's supposed to be like a, a, a cocaine kind of guy. Right. And in uh, reality, he was like strung out on heroin. Oh, wow. So the performance that he gave in the film was very low energy, very like restrained, right. very kind of chilled out. Um, whereas the director was going for this more like energetic, talking 90 miles uh-huh. a minute kind of thing. <laughs> and so for that reason, um, they had a falling out and they actually have not spoken since that film. And so now the film's been restored and they are asking him to come present it, and they also want him to have the lead actor come present it as gotcha. well. And so it's sort of like after all this time apart, yeah. Um, the filmmaker is also we 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 meet him at a moment in his life where he's had uh, some major surgeries done. His health is not what it used to be. Mm-hmm. He has difficulty getting around. He has like a lot of back pain, and so 
we're kind of seeing him at this moment later in his career where he actually feels like he can't make films anymore because he can't be as physically dedicated to mm -hmm. the role of the director as he used to be. So he's in this weird moment where he's sort of like becoming the legend, you know, he's becoming like right. the, the Lifetime Achievement Award phase of the career yes. where it's like, you know, it, on the one hand, it's great to be given these awards and this recognition and all this respect and so on. Uh -huh. But at the same time, it's kind of like saying your time is over right. and you're past it. And, Pain and glory. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there it is in the title. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's the story of these two friends kind of re reconnecting with each other uh -huh. and ultimately the story of this filmmaker kind of learning to live again, learning to, uh, you know, embrace life and not be so like fatalistic about everything and there's a, a numerous like flashbacks to his childhood where Penelope Cruz plays his mother. Oh, uh, she's in it. And those are some she's just great. extremely moving scenes where I, I think he captures so beautifully the quality of his childhood and um, just those those kind of like formative moments where, in the case of this character, he's kind of coming to terms with his sexuality. It's, he's he's realizing he's having the first inklings that he's gay. Is essentially, uh -huh. and um, which is a common theme, obviously, in a lot of emotive art films. Sure, um, and um, yeah, I mean, it, it's just a, a beautiful film about life, about a lot of things, about aging, yeah, about um, an artist who has had their moment and their moments kind of passed, and yeah. and and also sort of realizing that these people that he made the films with over the years were just that people, you know, yeah, and that there's more to it than just whether he's happy with the film or not, you right. know, and that there's these relationships that he's maybe discarded a little bit thoughtlessly that he's a actually able to, you know, begin again. Nice. Yeah. Uh, I think we have time maybe for one more. Sure. Um, maybe you can pick this one because some of these I don't really know. Um, yeah, what what, 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 a, what other film really stood out to you as something that you loved and like something that you really would like to recommend? How about this? Pick one that you would really like to recommend people see that they might otherwise not. Yeah, okay. So then the one I won't pick, because I think a lot of people will, will see this anyway, is Parasite, the Bong Joon-ho film. Okay. Um, just because he's he's made a number of great films, and um, this one won the top prize, the Palme d'Or, and um, is, you know, lives up to the hype, let's say. All right. So when that one opens, absolutely go see it if you're a fan of Bong Joon-ho. Um, that it definitely delivers, but I, I won't say anything more than that. Other than, it's a very well-made film. It's funny. Mm -hmm. It's violent. It's suspenseful, and it's just the kind of like extremely competently made film that mm -hmm. we see less and less these days. I think it, it it harkens back to another era of like just the rock-solid screenplay and mm -hmm. you know the director firing on all cylinders kind gotcha. of thing. So the one I think my favorite film. Overall, out of everything that I saw, oh, okay. a French film by, I don't know how you pronounce her name, Céline Siama or Skyama. Portrait sure. of a Lady on Fire. Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which is a little bit of a, it's not a great translation. The The French title is um, Portrait d'une jeune fille en feu, which is young young lady, like young woman on oh, okay. fire. Um, and the young is important because you know it is it is like a youthful love story. So it's essentially about... Uh, it's it's like a two-hander. It's these two young women. Uh, one is kind of lives in this like castle almost. You know, mm. it's it's like it's like a uh, a mansion, let's say, on the coast of France somewhere, and um, in in sort of relative isolation. 
um, has a wealthy mother, and the wealthy mother wants to marry off her young daughter. Mm -hmm. And the way they're going to accomplish this is by having her portrait painted. Mm -hmm. This is like, say, probably like the 18th, 19th century sometime. And, And by having this portrait made, they will show this portrait to wealthy you know, uh, eligible mm-hmm. men and, you know, maybe drum up some interest in, okay. in, in having this marriage happen. So that's her Tinder profile. Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. That's, that's, that's the <laughs> profile pic. And, uh, and so this young painter comes from Paris and, and is basically given this assignment to stay with her two, three weeks uh-huh. and, you know, get to know the subject, get, get to, to know, just to be familiar with what she looks like. Um, what she truly looks like, you know, to get an impression of the person, mm-hmm. not like a photographic one-to-one right. of like in that particular moment they yeah. look this way, but just a, a broader sense of who this is. Yeah. And so it, it's kind of like the paint what you know, not what you see sort of thing. Right. She, he's trying to capture an essence. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And it's a she. It's a woman. Oh, um, okay. And so uh, so she comes there and then slowly um, she she makes several attempts to to do this painting and then kind of discards them because none of them are really living up to capturing this essence mm-hmm. that she's aiming for. But in the backstory, like kind of in the background of all this, they're also sort of like getting feelings for each other. Okay. They're starting to fall in love. And uh, and so the mother goes away for uh, a number of weeks. It's not really specified exactly how long. I think we know what happens next. But <laughs> Yeah. But it's kind of like, by the time I get back, I want this portrait to be done right. and you to be out of here sort of thing. And that's obviously when their relationship really takes off to right. the next level. And yeah, they, it's like this beautiful love story. And they get the painting just right, right. you know. And then there's this realization of like, now everybody's back and right. there's like the strange young man downstairs and I don't really know this guy and right. he's here to kind of size me up and, Interesting. you know, and, and of course in front of the mother, they have to keep up appearances mm-hmm. and not have this big emotional goodbye. And so it's, it's very restrained and your heart's kind of in your throat because yeah. you, you want to see this, this, uh, this beautiful relationship continue and right. you know it for all these different reasons. It, it probably can't right. in that time. And so, there's that separation, uh, but then there's kind of like a wink and a nod at the end that sort of does not tell you that they're going to be together, but tells you that uh, that they their, their feelings for each other persisted. And so what what I found so compelling about the film, number one, the performances are excellent. Uh, the cinematography is beautiful. Mm-hmm. It, it is that sort of beautiful painterly uh, image that... Mm-hmm. We don't see all the time in cinema. Um, it's it, it's a very like gentle, quiet film. Yeah, there's not a lot of score. Um, the editing is kind of razor sharp. Mm-hmm. You you get into scenes and out of scenes at exactly the right time, and there's there's just so much happening in in the faces, in the way that they look at each other, uh, in the things that go unspoken and just felt mm-hmm. that. You you just feel like you are watching these two real people up on screen, yeah. And um, yeah, I, I was just like so thoroughly Amazing. impressed with the film. It also won one of the top prizes, uh, the best screenplay prize. Oh wow! I do believe it has been picked up. I forget by who, but somebody has picked it up for distribution, so it Good. will see a release and hopefully, um, yeah, more more to come. Awesome. Yeah, dude, this was fun. Yeah.
Uh, God, I think there's, this there's should so be an, an uh, annual tradition. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. There's um, there's a million more things to talk about, but that's just a little sampling. Nice. Of, uh, well, of you know the, what we could do is uh, maybe when this releases, we can just put out a list yeah, of other absolutely. recommendations on the Facebook page absolutely, from yeah, you. Totally. And just get that over to me and I'll post it. Yeah. and Because uh, I know people are always looking for, for good recs like this. Yeah, and there's there's a whole other you know, sidebar of all the stuff that I was able to catch outside of Cannes right. in Paris that, you know, informs the these trips as well. Just, well, just make a big old list. Yeah. Do whatever you want. You can <laughs> hijack my Facebook page for Carte a day. Blanche. All right. Uh, all right. Thanks, dude. And I hope everyone enjoyed this. And we'll be back next Monday with a regular silly mini. Yes. With Noel and I doing our dumb stuff. <laughs> but we thought we'd take it highbrow for a week. Yeah. And I uh, appreciate you stopping by. Oh, this is this has been so much fun. So thanks, thank brother. You. Yeah. Thanks, For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. With the new Dexcom G7, you can achieve better diabetes results without painful finger sticks. It sends your glucose numbers to your compatible phone or watch, so you can always see where you are and where you're heading. See how food and exercise affects your glucose, making it easier to spend more time in range and lower your A1C. Take control of your diabetes with the number one recommended CGM brand. It's easy to get started today at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This is Amy Brown from 4 Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual.